The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is February 3rd, Thursday. We're here, ready to rock and roll. Very tired. Didn't sleep well last night because my heat broke, so I was very cold. That's not very exciting to talk about, but (laughs) you had an exciting night that for once we could talk about something besides the weather and being cold or hot. I know. It was crazy. So it was... It was really crazy. So last night my husband decided to, we've got a puppy and an old dog and he decided to take them for a quick walk because the puppy was going crazy. It was rainy. It was, you know, a rainy, dreary night. So at, where we live is quite, um, it's not rural, but like we live on an acreage so we have a bit of land around our house. Anyway, so he was walking down the driveway and he saw all these lights at the bottom of the driveway, which is very strange because our street has no street lights. It's pitch black. You know, he, so he went down to see what was going on. Anyway, police were sitting out the front of our house in a police car. And when he kind of asked them what was going on, they said they were looking for someone, a man who had run into the bush and had been wearing black pants and a black shirt and to go inside and lock the doors. And if we saw anything to call triple zero, which is the emergency number. So I'm like, oh my God, like this stuff. And I know everyone always says this, but this stuff doesn't happen around here. Like nothing ever happens here. Sleepy town. (laughs) Sleepy town. It's very quiet. Like we know all the neighbors. It's very, you know, and our street is also a dead end street. So there's absolutely no reason to be down here unless you, you know, need to be, unless you live down here. And where we, it's surrounded by bush. Like my house, we have no neighbors on the back, it backs onto the bush. So We were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And anyway, so he came in, we turned on all the outside lights, it turned off all the inside lights just to help him, you know, to not see in, I guess, if he was running around. But the police ended up driving away about an hour later. So we're like, okay, it must not have been anything too crazy. They did originally say they were waiting for the dogs to come, like the sniffer dogs, we call them here, canine unit, whatever, to come and have a look and see if they could find this guy. Anyway, but they ended up leaving. So we thought maybe, I don't know, obviously we didn't know what the resolution was. So then I woke up this morning to all these messages (laughs) saying that there had been a murder in the next suburb to ours and that it was maybe it was related to what the police were looking for. The man, a man had been stabbed to death and, you know, I'm assuming that's all it could be because there doesn't, what, you know, what other reasoning would there be to have sniffer dogs, to have police out? The police were whispering. They were trying to be very quiet. It's all very (laughs) crazy. Um, You know, I don't know if it is related to the murder, but I can't imagine what else it would be that you know it wouldn't be for a break-in or a robbery or anything like that they wouldn't bother yeah i'm guessing whoever it was was on the run (laughs) yeah yeah and so like even even after the police drove away i walked down to have a look and you know just you went out on the hunt (laughs) (laughs) and it was just pitch black like i even took a video and i sent to you i think it was just pitch black very quiet very eerie but uh, I don't know. I don't know if they've caught the murderer. I don't know. Like it's it's only eight o'clock in the morning here, so it, maybe some more news will come out today. But yeah, it was very very unexpected and a very crazy, a little bit scary. Um, you know, especially when you got kids in the house. You're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? But yeah, um, yeah it was crazy. Just something that you would never expect on a random Thursday night. Yeah, <laughs> you went out there like the true crime <laughs> enthusiast you are. I kept telling my husband to go out. He's like, what if I get jumped on the driveway? <laughs> I said, just take the keys and give him the car keys. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't know. Very strange. I remember one time 
I live in, I live like in a building that has a restaurant below it for people who don't know. So, and I live kind of on a more main road, uh, pretty late. At, the restaurant closes like before 11, but it was like when the restaurant was closed and like three cops pulled up outside with their lights on. So me and my fiance were being nosy and we were peeking out or trying to see what's going on. We're like, let's go down there. Let's see what's going on. So we're like, okay, but how are you going to look like we're not just being nosy and snooping? So we're like, let's pretend to go get something out of our car. So we like sneak down and we're like trying to listen. Of course, we can't see anything or hear anything (laughs) at all. So we like go and sneak to our car and we like go and take out. There's like nothing even in our car that we could take. (laughs) So we got to like a coffee cup that was in the car that, you know, we needed it at 11 o'clock at night to get it from the car. But yeah, we didn't even see anything. But it's like, you'll always look for a reason to get out there and be nosy. Everyone's always nosy when they see like a fire truck or a police car or whatever and <laughs> tries to find out what's going on. As soon as I see lights outside somewhere, I'm I'm out looking, <sighs> trying to see. Even today, like, you know, if I'm at home during the day or whatever, I don't lock the doors. But I just, when I got home this morning after dropping the kids off, I've locked all the doors <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Growing up, we like never did because we always had big german shepherd so it just seems like we didn't need to but now that i'm more into true crime and i hear all these stories and stuff i'm like i can't believe the amount that we didn't lock our doors and just thought that god couldn't touch us like one thing i always do now too is i always lock the doors when i'm in the car driving a friend of mine not too long ago she has a she's got a nice car and someone tried to open the doors. she saw him coming so she locked the doors and I think he was obviously on drugs because she said to him, what, like, she wound down the window a tiny bit and she's like, what do you want? And he's like, I want to steal your car. <laughs> obviously, you know, she was safe in the car. But, yeah, just random things like that can happen when you least expect it. Yeah, another random thing that reminded me of kind of a PSA, I guess. This girl that I went to high school with was posting on her Instagram story about how she was kind of in like a crappy area of town and she was, she was pumping gas. And, you know, you don't always relock the door when you're right there pumping gas. But while she was pumping gas, some people broke into her car from the other side. Yeah, so you can't you can't really see them doing it. Well, I guess you probably could if you saw the door open. But yeah. Like, because her back was to it because you're, like, pumping gas watching the thing. And they quietly did it. And they, like, stole her purse, her phone, like, all of her stuff. And, but she, like, caught them while it was happening. But, like, she couldn't do anything about it at that point, really. Yeah, what are you going to do? You're not going to chase them or... Yeah, so she was, like, just a PSA. Like, always lock your doors, even when you're right there pumping gas. Because... Yeah. You never know. You never know when there's some creep around just waiting for it. Yeah. All right. Well, it's enough enough fun for us. Um, <laughs> enough excitement for one week. <laughs> enough ex- excitement for one podcast intro. It was um, just one little quick morbid on that. This morning when I woke up to all these messages about there being a murder, my friend goes, Olivia, if you put this on the podcast, I'm going to have to be a guest. Because <laughs> she was the one who sent me the information about the murder this morning. So. Tell her to send us a voice memo to put in of her, her telling the tale. <laughs> All right. Today we're going to talk about the death of Lauren Smith Fields, which is a big one right now. It's uh, it's made a lot of mainstream news. It, I'm assuming most people have heard about it. She went on a Bumble date and then was found dead in her bed. And the police kind of just said it was an accident and forgot about it. And her family pushed for them to investigate it more because obviously, like, why wouldn't they investigate it more? I mean, there's a lot more to it. I'm just giving you the brief summary here to jog your memories. It's very topical and very recent. Like, she only passed away in December. So it's only, you know, it's all picked up steam in the last few weeks, it seems to. Yeah, it's making more news now because 
Um, there's been a lot of protests because Lauren was black and the man who she went on the date with was white. And people are a lot of people are saying that they feel like this was swept under the rug because she's black. And yeah. the police didn't seem to care to investigate her case. So we're going to get into that one. And we're going to talk about a few other cases that are similar in the sense that they had to do with meeting men on dating apps. We're also going to talk about Sydney Loof and the death of Warina Wright. All right, so we'll start with Lauren. Calls have been growing louder like this March on Sunday. Hundreds calling on police to investigate the death of 23-year-old Lauren Smith Fields. Investigators say she overdosed in her Connecticut apartment on December 12th in the company of a man she had just met on the dating app Bumble. Since the beginning, her family has questioned what really happened and whether police properly investigated. No one is going to discard my daughter like she's rubbish. Today, a major development. Bridgeport, Connecticut police now say they will investigate the death as a crime and will be assisted by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. The police chief says the Bridgeport Police Department continues to treat the untimely death of Lauren Smith Fields as an active investigation as we are now refocusing our attention and efforts to the factors that led to her untimely death. We have engaged several partners to assist with this portion of the investigation. So we haven't been able to find too much on Lauren's life before this incident occurred, so we don't have too much background information on her. Maybe more will come out as the story goes on. But as far as we know, Lauren was 23 years old when she passed away on December 12th, 2021. And she lived in an apartment in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And that's where all this took place. I don't live, I mean, I don't really live close to Bridgeport, but enough where it's kind of like I could drive there if I wanted to. But no, Bridgeport is one of the most dangerous cities in Connecticut, even in the country. It usually makes lists for one of the most dangerous cities. Um, I looked up just a few facts about it quickly and says the chance of becoming a victim of either a violent or property crime in Bridgeport is 1 in 44. Based on FBI crime data, Bridgeport is not one of the safest communities in America. Relative to Connecticut, Bridgeport has a crime rate that's higher than 80% of the state's cities and towns of all sizes. So just some background information on the area and that could kind of feed into like the police maybe not doing the best job with it later. Yeah, but we'll, we'll circle back. Lauren graduated from Stanford High School and was studying physical therapy at Norwalk Community College. She was active on social media, posts about beauty and travel. Her Instagram's open, so we'll link it on the blog if you want to check it out. She was a huge fan of music, and she was a big fan of SZA's Good Days. Just a random fact about her. Lauren's mother, Chantel Fields, spoke about her daughter's personality. She said, the nail salon we go to, everybody loves her adding that her daughter was very bubbly and a hugger. She loved traveling, working out regularly at a nearby LA fitness and ordering matcha tea. She had notes around her mirror. Her mother said spelling out what she wanted to do with her life, finish college, become a physical therapist. And just kind of as to give you a bit of a picture more about Lauren, she was absolutely stunning. Like she had long dark hair. Um, she was yeah, she's beautiful, really pretty. Yeah, beautiful looking girl. And it sounds like she was also, you know, a good friend and very much loved by her family and friends. So Lauren used the popular dating app Bumble. If you're not familiar with it, Google says Bumble is an online dating app. Profiles of potential matches are displayed to users who can swipe left to reject a candidate or swipe right to indicate interest. It sounds kind of similar to Tinder, but it seems more like Tinder's more known for being kind of like a hookup app now, I guess, whereas Bumble is more so for people who are looking for relationships, maybe. I don't know. I haven't been on one 
in years because as you know I just got engaged (laughs) I always thought Bumble was a bit more like I I do agree with that I think and obviously you know there's going to be people probably still just looking for hookups on there but I feel like people on Bumble are looking for more something more than just a one-night stand generally one selling point of Bumble is that women make the first move so I think that like men can't just message you you have to match and then the girl has to message the guy because I like on dating apps so many like not to sound snobby but girls get bombarded by messages sometimes of just guys like looking to hook up and stuff like that so this kind of makes it um a little less overwhelming for girls who are looking for someone to date and just a random fact about me me and Mike my fiance we met on a dating app what one no free ads, so I'm not going to say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we met on OkCupid. Okay if they, if they want to um, have me do an ad, let me know. So Google, according to Google, Bumble is not known as a marketplace for hookups. Less than 4% of men and less than 1% of women on Bumble are looking for a hookup. Men are attracted to women who make the first move. 63% of men said that women making the first move was influential in making them want to use Bumble. This is like an ad for Bumble now. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So Lauren matched on Bumble with a man named Matthew LaFontaine. Matthew was 37 at the time of the match. It's important to note that Matthew has not been charged with anything in the case and isn't even considered a suspect at this moment in time. So don't don't think that yet. I've read all I've read is that you know from his side is that he's been cooperating with the police and basically isn't considered a suspect at this point. Yeah, I have heard the same since this is all happened matthew's taken on all social media since lauren's death so there's also not too much online about him that we could find matthew said he only had known lauren for around three days after she i mean when she passed away so matthew's version of events is that lauren asked him for 40 dollars to get her nails done that was on december 11th a saturday she then said they should meet at her apartment in bridgeport matthew met lauren there and has said they did tequila shots lauren became sick after the shots and went to the bathroom to vomit when she came back, they had a few more drinks of tequila with mixers, and Matthew said they played games and ate food. They began to watch a movie, and Lauren got a text on her phone. Matthew believed that the text was from Lauren's brother. Lauren left the apartment to get something from her brother, and when she returned, she went into the bathroom and stayed there for 10 to 15 minutes. In the official report, a police officer wrote, He thought it was odd, but didn't think it was his place to say anything, as he didn't know her that well. The next information we're going to go over comes from a really in-depth Rolling Stone article, which we'll link in the blog. It's uh, a good read. Yeah. It seems like they were were one of the first kind of mainstream outlets to follow Lauren's case, and they have continued to follow it. So Yeah, like how we were saying early on, this kind of seemed like it was almost swept under the rug, even at the time when I first started hearing about it, because I kind of live close-ish to where this happened. I was trying to look up news articles and i couldn't even find really any news articles about except like the rolling stone and maybe a few other more like blog type things i feel so like a lot of those to show you a lot of the articles too just kind of regurgitate what the rolling stone article has said there isn't really essentially much information that isn't in the rolling stone article at this point yeah there's just no news articles like you know when someone's found deceased or something there's usually a news article like woman found deceased in bed at this place there's nothing really so Lauren's brother, Lakeem Jetter, has a different story about what happened that night. He said, I haven't texted my sister since December 4th. Um, he told the media that he had gone to Lauren's apartment to pick up some clothing that was there. 
He said, I didn't know that anybody was in there. She came out and she was out here for like 10, 15 minutes and she walked back into the house. She looked normal. She didn't look sick. She didn't look tired. She didn't look drunk. I'm her second older brother. If I would have seen her drunk, I would have said, what are you doing? What? Why do you look like that? Lauren and Matthew kept drinking the tequila until they finished the bottle. They watched the movie and Lauren fell asleep on the couch. Matthew said that he carried Lauren to her bedroom where they both went to sleep. At 3 a.m., he said he went to use the restroom and she was snoring. At 6.30 a.m., he said that she was laying on her right side with blood coming out of her right nostril and she was not breathing, so he called 911. The investigation into Lauren's death seems to have been botched almost from the very start. Lauren was pronounced dead at the scene on December 12th and her body was removed. It seems like no real effort to trace her next of kin was made. The family like made a big point of being like, the police didn't even reach out to us and let us know that she passed away. They found out from her landlord that she had passed away. I feel like, too, I've read that there's actually a protocol that is meant to be followed when someone dies in a situation like this. And I think the police have like 24 hours in which they have to inform the family. Um, you know, yeah, it's, they didn't make an effort. Lauren's phone was there. It was her apartment. Like there would have been a way they could have contacted someone in her family, but they just didn't do it. Lauren's mother, Chantel Fields, tried to contact her daughter for hours. Are you okay? Please let me know. She was texting her. The following day, December 13th, Chantel went to Lauren's apartment and she found a note stuck to the door. If you're looking for Lauren, call this number, the note read. Lauren's landlord answered the number and went to meet Chantel. She and that's how she learned that Lauren had passed away from the landlord. The landlord gave them the number for a detective who told her son in a phone call that Lauren had been on a bumble date with an older man before she died. The family phoned an officer, Cronin, who said he would arrive in 30 minutes. After waiting over an hour, they said they called again, and the family was told to stop calling. Um, Chantel said how they spoke to us was disgusting, hanging up the phone and telling us to stop calling them. Officer Cronin needs to lose his job. From there, Lauren's family obtained a copy of the police report detailing the events of the night she died. Nowhere in the report was it mentioned that Matthew had been taken in for questioning. Lakeem, Lauren's brother, asked the police about that, and they said he had not been taken in as he seemed like a nice guy. <laughs> Quote, nice guy. That was what they actually said. And I've seen other things saying like a really nice guy or a very nice guy. So that was their yeah, reasoning like, for it. Uh, people said BTK was a nice guy too. <laughs> <laughs> the police report does state that Matthew was frantic about the situation when they arrived. Just as a side note. Police took Lauren's phone, $1,345 cash, keys, and her passport from the apartment, assuming they held onto it for safekeeping, since it doesn't seem like they were looking for evidence, really. As far as we've seen or researched, that there wasn't really any forensic examination of the apartment or anything like that done at the time. So three days after Lauren was buried, brings us to December 29th, her family returned to the apartment to clean out her belongings. They found a used condom with semen in the trash, lubrication, bloody sheets, and an unidentified pill. None of this had been taken into evidence, as we were just saying. Due to Officer Cronin's mismanagement of the case, it was reassigned to a Detective Garcia. Internal Affairs are conducting an investigation into Officer Cronin now. When Garcia went to the apartment, that was the first time the family said that police came to conduct a crime scene investigation, but the majority of the evidence had been packed, such as the dishes and bloody sheets. Lakeem, the brother, he said, The first night we saw cups there, flipped plates, and the lube. The cops didn't take any of the cups to test the liquor. There was a big stain of blood in the middle of her bed, with streaks going to the right side. During Garcia's visit, the family described him as unprofessional. Chantel recalled, 
Garcia being like, fuck Cronin. He got kicked off the case. He's a fucking asshole. He then called himself, reassuring me, saying that he was Puerto Rican, so he was on my side and telling me how he has daughters. The family says the relationship with police devolved from there. No contact from December 13th until December 29th. They returned to the apartment to clear out Lauren's belongings and claim a new detective came by to say he'd taken over the case from Detective Cronin. Detective said he effed up, he messed up, he effed Cronin, he messed up, he like he didn't know what he was doing, he messed up the case. The family says they provided evidence they'd collected to crime scene investigators who arrived for the first time that day included a bloody sheet and a pill and two cups of like drinks or whatever next to a bottle they didn't take none of that we seen a condom we seen a uh, lube uh other stuff in there and they didn't take none of this rolling stone reported on january 16th that none of the evidence allegedly taken by police had been submitted to the proper channels lauren's family had been very vocal about their thoughts of matthew's version of events um, regarding Lauren asking for $40 to get her nails done, they have said that she had her nails done just days before her death. They were still intact, so when she died, they did not need to be redone for her funeral. Well, are, are they trying to, like... Yeah, I think that's what they're saying, is that that was a lie, that she wouldn't have asked for money for that. That's that's the only reason I can think they're trying to say it wasn't true. Matthew's attorney, Peter Karyanis, has stated that he is not a suspect in Lauren's death. He said, I think it's the media that's made him the main focus of this investigation. Although Bridgeport Police did investigate the matter, he did fully cooperate, and he's not the main focus of the investigation anymore. As we know, the DEA is involved now, and they will help local authorities investigate the matter and get to the bottom of what happened to Lauren. The attorney also described Matthew as single and age 37. He said, we will continue to cooperate with authorities to help definitively determine what happened to Lauren on that evening. And we want her family to find some peace after this heartbreaking loss. We're now at Sunday, January 23rd, and that would have been Lauren's 24th birthday. Her family organized a march in Bridgeport that attracted local and national attention. Hundreds of people showed up to show their support, and they all sang happy birthday to Lauren. Protested chanted things like, we want answers, protect black women, save our daughters, Bridgeport step up, and Mayor Ganim step up, as they marched from Congress Street to the Morton Government Center. Lauren's father, Everett Smith, was there, and he said that the family's treatment by the city and police is, quote, totally unacceptable. And Chantel also spoke and said that her daughter had been treated like rubbish. Everett said, the arrogance, the insensitivity, my daughter had a life. My daughter traveled the world. She was in college. All we keep getting is doors closed in our face and empty promises. So the next day, January 24, the office of the chief medical examiner ruled Lauren's death to be accidental. They said that she died by acute intoxication due to the combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydroxyzine, and alcohol. Because fentanyl was found in Lauren's system, Bridgeport PD opened the investigation, which will be conducted by the Narcotics and Vice Division with assistance from the US DEA. So that's what the lawyer was speaking about in the last statement that we mentioned. The chief of police, who is Rebecca Garcia, and it's a little bit confusing because there is Rebecca Garcia and there's also another male officer, Garcia, who has been dealing with the family. So This isn't the first Garcia we were talking about. Yeah, this is a separate, the chief of police, Rebecca. Bridgeport Police Department continues to treat the untimely death of Lauren Smithfields as an active investigation, as we are now refocusing our attention and efforts to the factors that led to her untimely death. So if you're not familiar with the drugs that were found in her system... Promethazine or promethazine is an antihistamine 
and he's used to treat allergy symptoms such as itching, runny nose, sneezing, you know, the usual allergy symptoms. It also prevents motion sickness and treats nausea and vomiting or pain after surgery. It can be used as a sedative or a sleep aid. Fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid that is similar to morphine but is 50 to 100 times more potent. It is a prescription drug that is also made and used illegally. I know a lot of drugs these days like cocaine and you know, heroin and things like that are sometimes cut with fentanyl, which is what actually causes a lot of the deaths recently. Yeah, and it's like mixed with everything these days. And people don't know. Like, yeah, people take it and take their usual amount of, say, cocaine, but it's mixed with fentanyl and you need much less fentanyl to overdose and die. Um, Like morphine, fentanyl is typically used to treat patients with severe pain, especially after surgery. Hydroxyzine is also sent under the brand name Atarax, and that's also an antihistamine. It's used for the same treatment of itchiness, anxiety, and nausea, and it can also cause sleepiness. So Lauren's family have said that basically she had no history of drug use at all and she was absolutely not known to be a drug user. I wonder if it was normal for her to take antihistamines in general, Um, Mm. like if she had any allergies or anything like that or if she took them for sleep or I'd just be curious to know that. But they do always say you shouldn't drink on antihistamines. I mean, I'm sure we've all done it, but that's just like fentanyl is obviously a whole different thing, but just wonder how much was in her system that she was drinking on them on two different antihistamines too or if that was part of like her being drugged yeah well those two antihistamines you wouldn't think would be cut with fentanyl like they're just basic drugs that you get from the drugstore you will have to wonder where the fentanyl came into play yeah that's why i'm curious is if if she normally took antihistamines i have seen some comments online that you know because of the combination of drugs that they are sometimes seen in date rape scenarios. Obviously, I'm that's not what saying I was just thinking. that's what happened here, but they are that are you know there are many comments about that online. Well, because the, the antihistamines they make you sleepy to begin yeah. with, and especially if you're drinking on them, they can make you extra sleepy and like confused and groggy. So that's why I was like, I wonder if she takes them normally. I'd be mm. curious to know. So after Lauren's cause of death was made public, the family attorney, Darnell Crossland, said, I think they thought we were going to shut up and lose faith in Lauren and think she was just a drug addict, but people didn't run away. They doubled down. Darnell Crossland has been very vocal in this case now that he's been kind of retained by the family. He tweeted and said, the ME findings doesn't cure any of Bridgeport Police Department lack of process. In fact, it makes it worse. As a result of a botched investigation this morning, we are left with more questions than answers. And he's also tweeted, I've never seen a medical examiner conclude a mixer of drugs as an accident without knowing who provided the drugs or how it was ingested. Lauren didn't use drugs. So Lauren's father, Everett, has also spoken about the overdose finding. He said, without a doubt, we know that my daughter was not a drug user and I have had a second autopsy myself paid out of pocket because we felt so uncomfortable with the way it was handled. So I haven't actually seen any more information about the second autopsy because I know they buried Lauren. So I don't know if that was conducted before she was buried or if they're going to have to exhume her or what. But anyway, her father has said that he has paid for a second autopsy. Lauren's family are now suing the city of Bridgeport in connection with the police department on the grounds of mishandling the case. According to Darnell Crosland, he said it's a violation of the 1983 Civil Rights Act. He spoke to CNN and he said the family is not paranoid. The reason it feels that way is because as of late, Gabby Petito was missing and the type of manhunt that was out for her killer was insurmountably different than we see here. When Lauren's family were finally able to speak to the Bridgeport police, they said they were taken into an interrogation room and basically treated like criminals. 
they said that Detective Garcia, not Rebecca Garcia, this is the other detective, made them feel uncomfortable. They said, when I mentioned that fuck Cronin in the interrogation room, he turned into a maniac. He said, I would never talk bad about another colleague and you're lying. That's what Chantel Lauren's mother said. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want my boss to know that either. Yeah, <laughs> like, whatever. I feel like everyone would deny that. Mm. Um, so as we mentioned that this case in the last few weeks has kind of been getting more media attention. Cardi B has also taken up for the case. She's tweeted about Lauren's death and she said, Connecticut, you have failed that young lady. The mayor, Joseph P. Gannam, has also made his first statements about the case and he's spoken about how police has, have handled it. He said, I share concerns echoed by many about the amount of time and manner a family is informed of a loss. Death notification should be done in a manner that illustrates dignity for the deceased and respect and compassion for the family. Therefore, I will work with the Chief of Police to make appropriate changes here in Bridgeport now for our department's policies and practices regarding notifying family members of a death. I support and add my voice to the family, community and elected officials who are calling for state legislation on this issue. One other kind of interesting, maybe a fact, I don't know, but thing that's come out in the last few weeks is that the landlord has said that he had a knock on his door at 5.30am on the day that Lauren was, you know, was found dead. He said he didn't answer the knock because it was too early, but Lauren was pronounced dead one hour later. According to the family, this knock at the door has not been investigated by police. So I guess the insinuation is that maybe it was Matthew or I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what yeah, the... weird. Darnell Croslin, the attorney for the family, has also spoken again. He spoke about Matthew's involvement in the case. He said they've been tight-lipped about his involvement, but we've been finding out on social media that Matthew, the individual who was with Lauren, has a huge connection with the police department and his family does as well. Darnell Crosland also spoke about Officer Cronin. He said, Cronin has intentionally or negligently cre created a cover-up for the responsible party in Lauren's death. So um, I feel like they're going down the route of insinuating that there may be some police cover-up going cover on. Up. Yeah. Um, he's also spoke more about the kind of inappropriate relationships within the police department. He said the acting police chief was a long-time living girlfriend of the head of internal affairs. We have a lot to outline the incestuous, corrupt, and disorganized space here. Chantel and Lauren's brother, Lakeem, said when they walked into the police office, they were treated as suspects. And, you know, as we mentioned, they were put in a tiny interrogation room. When they walked into the room, everyone looked up and they gave us dirty looks, Lakeem said. It was scary. They were yelling at our lawyer, telling him to shut up, and they were grabbing their guns. Oh, Bridgeport. <laughs> Matthew has also now not ruled out taking legal action. Too early to tell in regards to that. There's a city council member in the area called Maria Pereira. She has also now questioned how the police department would treat a wealthy white mother and father who had lost their daughter, particularly if the last person she had met was a 37-year-old black man on a dating app. She said, I believe wholeheartedly this would never have happened if it was an affluent white family's daughter. Bumble made a statement to Rolling Stone. They said, we are deeply saddened by the news of Lauren Smithfield's death and have reached out directly to the family to offer support. We stand ready to provide appropriate assistance and information as requested by law enforcement. The safety of our community is our priority and we will continue to work day in and day out to keep our members safe. We have a dedicated team who responds to requests for information from law enforcement authorities around the world. 
So on January 28th, um, so that was literally just a few days ago, the family of another woman found dead in Bridgeport on the same day as Lauren came forward. Brenda Rawls was 53 when she died on December 12th. Brenda's family has said, just like Lauren's family, they were not notified of her death and they had to investigate to find out themselves. This info comes from NBC News. Brenda's sister Dorothy Walls Washington said that Brenda and her were close and they talked on the phone or texted one another every day. On December 11, Brenda told her family that she planned to go to the home of a male friend who lived down the street. Her family said they then tried to reach her on December 12 and 13 and they couldn't get in touch with her. On the 14th, we said, something's wrong. So two of my sisters, my niece, and my niece's boyfriend walked down to that male's house. When they asked him where she was, he said that he couldn't wake her up on December 12 and that she had died. We knew nothing what was going on. 57-year-old Dorothy Rawls of Bridgeport (laughs) says she is hoping and praying for a light at the end of the tunnel. After two weeks of what she describes as the most painful experience she and her family have ever had to endure. We want to know why our sister was treated like a Jane Doe. Nobody notified us. It's it's almost like they wanted to disappear and and for us to disappear. Rawls says her sister, 53-year-old Brenda Lee Rawls, was found dead under what the family describes as mysterious circumstances in a house on Pearl Harbor Street, December 12th. The whole family joined together in a Christmas morning prayer vigil each member sharing words charged with emotion. I love you, Brenda. I will never, ever forget you. You will always be in my mind, in my heart. I love you. Somebody, please talk to us. Tell us something. One of the Rawls sisters called a funeral home to ask whether her body was there, but it wasn't. The funeral home then advised the family to contact the state medical examiner, and that's where they found her. The sister said they never took any opportunity to look for next of kin. The next time we saw our sister, she was in a funeral home. The family has sent letters to the mayor, to the acting police chief, and they haven't received any responses. NBC tried to get in contact with the mayor again, and he didn't respond at the time that they printed the article. Two days later, though, on January 30, Mayor Gannam announced that both Detective Angel Larnos and Detective Kevin Cronin had been placed on administrating leave. He said both men are the subject of a Bridgeport Police Office of Internal Affairs investigation and disciplinary action for lack of sensitivity to the public. Um, And he said that they basically failed to follow police policy with the handling of the two matters, which are Lauren and Brenda's deaths. So I believe that Angel Larnos was the one who was kind of handling um, Brenda Rawls' case. Yeah. The mayor said, as a, I, as, I as a mayor but also as a father cannot fully comprehend what you must be going through. I can only pledge my continued support to try and ease your pain by getting answers and holding those responsible accountable. So we're now at February 3 um, US time. I had a look this morning. There are no other updates um, really, for Lauren's case at this time, um, you know, I think this will be ongoing, especially if the family are going to get another autopsy. This isn't something that I think will die down. The family are looking for justice, rightly so, for Lauren. So it will be an ongoing process, I think. But that is up to date as of February third. What do you do? You have an opinion of what happened, or it's t- it's kind of too hard to say. I feel like obviously they botched the investigation from the start. Like they didn't seem to care. And like I was saying earlier in the episode, I feel like some of that must do with Bridgeport's high crime rate, maybe like the pan, not that it's an excuse, I'm just saying how it kind of all culminated. 
maybe like there's short staffing with the police officers, lack of resources, pandemic, yeah. yeah, lack of resources, you know, all those things. Not that, as I said, not that that's an excuse, but just kind of seems like that's how it all came to a head. And it's good that they found out that some of these officers are being shitty and that it's now being looked into. But I mean, in a sense of like what now, I feel like once they find out where the drugs came from, that'll open a lot of doors. Yeah, I'll be interested to learn more about that because I guess essentially there are three maybe people who it could have came from. Matthew would be one. Lauren could have got the drugs from someone else not that we don't know about. Or I guess it could have been from the brother during that 10 to 15 minute meeting. Like, you know, I'm not saying it is any of those people, but you know, well, it'll be in- interesting to see if they can determine where she did get the drugs from. Yeah, I mean, either Lauren got the drugs for herself or Matt Matthew got the drugs for them or he drugged her. So one of them must have gotten these somehow, whether they knew it was fentanyl or not. Yeah. But I feel like they'll probably look at his phone records, like her phone records, text messages, stuff like that. Made the brothers since he stopped by there. And hopefully they'll be able to figure it out that way. Because it does seem like it'd be like finding a needle in a haystack at this point. But I think once they find out where the drugs came from, that'll point them in the right direction. I'll be interested to see, too, if anything comes of the one pill that they did find in the apartment. Um, Yeah, I want to know more about that. mm, But I guess, you know, if, as per the Rolling Stone, if none of the forensic kind of analysis had been conducted by January 16, which was only two, essentially just over two weeks ago, um, there's yeah very little known at the moment in terms of certainty around the forensics and what was found in the apartment. Yeah. I also feel that Matthew's version of events versus maybe the brother's version of events would be easy enough to prove. They can just look at phone records and see if she, who she did get a text from or do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, maybe, I think phone records will definitely have a lot of evidence. Maybe she did get a text and Matthew thought it was from the brother, but it was from someone else. So, you know, like there's, yeah, I feel like those things shouldn't be too hard to prove or disprove. Yeah. I mean, from what her family's saying, it doesn't seem like it would be normal for her to do. And I mean, I just know how, how I've been hearing so many stories lately about how fentanyl is just like in everything like you could it could even be in marijuana and can make you really sick so it's just really scary how easy it is to overdose with fentanyl even if you're like not really trying to do drugs or anything like that not saying that she did anything but it's just scary how easy it can happen is what i'm saying of course um, she could have been drugged like she this guy could have gotten drugs and drugged her too like i'm just making a observation in general about how scary it is i would say that maybe i don't know 90 or even 95 percent of the drug deaths that we see both in true crime society and our other groups are fentanyl at the moment like they're always like very very rarely is it just cocaine or very you know it's always something that's been cut with fentanyl it just seems to be super deadly and an epidemic at the moment like if someone wanted to buy like a Xanax or a prescription pill, yeah. which obviously like you're abusing drugs, but sometimes people just like want to take a Xanax or want to take maybe like Adderall or things like that where people don't even really think that much about it. It could have fentanyl in it. Yeah. We'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'll be interested to see kind of like where the investigation goes from here, like what they find out, how they find it out. Um, but yeah, I think there will be lots more information to come soon. Lauren obviously isn't the first woman to die after meeting someone. 
from a dating app, and sadly, I doubt she will be the last. So we're going to talk about two other cases over the last few years that were popular where dating apps were involved. Just to remind everyone to be safe on dating apps. Definitely. Be safe when meeting strangers. Yep. Um, Okay. So Sydney Loof was murdered by a couple after she met a woman on Tinder in November 2017. Sydney took a selfie on the night she died and posted it on Snapchat with the caption, ready for my date, and she included a heart eye emoji. I feel like that's a pretty um, infamous photo in the true crime area. Like everyone, like anyone who ever followed her case would know that photo. She's wearing kind of a white jacket. She's got her hair done. She looks happy. So it's just sad that that was kind of her final image of her excited for her date that was going to end her life. Yeah, and she's very like cute looking. Like She has like, a little like pixie face in a way. Um, yeah. So Sydney had struggled with depression in the past and had a tattoo on her arm that read, Everything will be wonderful someday. Mm, Everclear song. Mm. Sydney met a woman named Audrey on Tinder and they had a first date where they had driven around and gotten to know each other. The photo she took was when she was getting ready for her second date. Um, Sydney did not show up for work the next day at the hardware store as scheduled. She didn't answer calls or texts from her parents, so they drove to her apartment. Her cat, Mimsy was there, hungry and alone. Sydney's car was also there, and her phone had been switched off. This photo, posted on Snapchat Wednesday, was the last time anyone heard from 24-year-old Sydney Loof. She texted me and told me about the date she had went on the night before with this gal and how great it went, and she was excited to go on a date with her again. Lincoln police confirm investigators have spoken to the woman Loof was planning to meet, but no other details. Tara Gehring, a co-worker from Menards, says they let Loof's family know when she didn't show up to work Thursday. She wouldn't do this to her family. She um, respects her parents a lot, loves her parents a lot. Loof's parents, George and Susie, tell us officers checked their daughter's place in Lincoln and that her SUV is still parked in the front. Investigators say they got leads that Louv may have been in Wilbur, Nebraska since her disappearance. That's very strange to all of us. It's also very strange that her phone's off and disabled. I mean, she was always on Snapchat posting stories. Louv's friends all over Nebraska are helping spread the word via flyers and social media. Investigators tracked down Audrey, Sydney's Tinder date, and found out her real name was Bailey Boswell, a 23-year-old woman. Bailey had an older boyfriend named Aubrey Trail. Not a very creative fake name. Yeah, Aubrey, Audrey, close enough. And Aubrey was 51. Police learned that Bailey and Aubrey had catfished Sydney and planned to abduct and murder her. Sydney's dismembered remains were found stuffed into garbage bags in Omaha, Nebraska on December 4th, 2017. Sydney's body had been cut up into 14 pieces and some, some of her organs and body parts were never found. The cause of death was suffocation, and she had put up a fight in her final moments. Her earlobe was torn, and she had bruising on her wrists, the back of her head, and her inner thighs. She'd clearly been restrained before she was suffocated. During the investigation, more was learned about Aubrey and Bailey's twisted relationship. The pair enjoyed group sex with other women who they met through Tinder. Aubrey told them stories about gaining power from killing people. Police determined that Bailey had indeed catfished Sydney with the intention of murdering her. There was even surveillance footage of Aubrey and Bailey out before Sydney's date, where they bought tools and bleach. They were arrested in June 2018 and charged with Sydney's murder. Aubrey told the media that Sydney had agreed to be part of a sexual fantasy with him and two other women, while Bailey was passed out on drugs in another room. 
It got rough and something had became tight around Sydney's neck. Aubrey also told his lawyers that he had a sex party with the two women. They had all had sex, but while Sydney was handcuffed, he had choked her with an electrical cord and killed her. Aubrey eventually came clean about Sydney's murder. He claimed Sydney's killing wasn't planned, but she had been lured to the apartment by Bailey and Sydney freaked out. They had hoped that she would join in their sex ring and criminal activities. When she resisted, Aubrey killed and dismembered her with a saw to protect their lifestyle. Three additional women testified about being lured into sex being lured into this sex cult via Tinder between June 2017 and November. Aubrey told the court he was a vampire who could fly and read minds. He and Bailey both alleged they could gain more powers by killing people, even more if they tortured them first. It's like, so much to say, but like nothing to say, because it's yeah. just like, what? Yeah. It's like, these pe- there's people like this out there. The woman would have sex with the couple in exchange for an allowance. Aubrey made them call him daddy, and he would call Boswell the queen witch. Bailey and Aubrey would both be found guilty of first-degree murder, criminal conspiracy to commit murder, and improper disposal of human remains. In June 2021, Aubrey was sentenced to death for the murder of Sidney Luth. In November 2021, Bailey Boswell was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is a clip of Bailey addressing the court, saying why she feels she doesn't deserve the death penalty kind of apologizing for what she did, and it's all very eye-roll after we've learned how horribly and brutally Sydney was murdered and dismembered. I am so sorry for everything that happened to Sydney Loof and for for my role in what happened to her. I am sorry for the pain Aubrey and I caused Sydney's family and friends. I am sorry for their loss. When I met Aubrey, I was in a very bad place. My boyfriend... The father of my child had been abusing me for a long time. I felt I couldn't leave him. I felt trapped. Aubrey offered me a way out of that relationship. He gave me money and gifts. More importantly, I believed that he really loved me. At first, I was grateful to him. Later, I became afraid of him. I was afraid to refuse to follow his orders. I was afraid to even question him. I was afraid of what he would do to my daughter and my parents if I tried to leave him. He told me he would kill them. I truly believe he had special powers and knew at all times what I was doing and thinking. Aubrey took from me what little spirit I had left. I know many people who are about to be sentenced claim to have found God. I've been in jail for a long time. Even though there are other women around me, I've been alone. I've been lost. I've mostly felt empty. I chose to try to become closer to God because there was nothing else for me to do. Every day I ask God to help me become a better person. I will spend the rest of my life in prison, but I believe I can help other women like me, women who will be in prison forever and women who will someday be released from prison. I believe I can help them become stronger women who will be able to avoid men like Freddie and Aubrey. My daughter is the most important person in my life. I love her so much. Because of my actions and inactions, she and I will never spend time together outside of a prison. When she is old enough to understand why I'm in prison, she will have to live with the knowledge that her mommy was convicted of murder. Her friends will believe her mommy is a murderer. But I know I can still be there for her in some way. 
she needs a mommy, and I know I can contribute to her life. For my sake, please don't. For my daughter's sake, please don't take my life. So, yeah, it's um, very cringy to hear her say how she deserves to be a mom and to be a mommy to her daughter when she took away Sydney's chance to live. Maybe that's harsh of me, but it really annoyed me to hear this apology from her. It's a very sad one because they preyed on Sydney, who was obviously quite vulnerable and lonely. Um, yeah, I guess in that, and he admitted that she didn't agree to the sex party, right? Like, because first he was saying how they were having the sex party and he choked her by accident. And then he said that she, they tried to convince her to have a sex party and she was like, no. And then they killed her. Because I was like, I wouldn't believe that story to fucking begin with. Like, she's just like this cute young girl who thought she was going on a date with another female. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, she wasn't there to hook up with a 51-year-old gross guy. Who thought? Who thinks he's a fucking vampire. Mm. Daddy vampire. <laughs> yeah so they yeah they really preyed on her um that's one of those really scary stories too because it's just so random like they literally basically just picked this random girl that they could get on a dating app tried to sucker her into their weird plan that not a lot of people would be down with especially with people you, like, you don't even know and when she didn't want to do that they just murdered her and dismembered her rather than have her tell anyone about their lifestyle yeah which they seem perfectly fine bragging about once they were arrested mm. very sad yeah so another high profile case regarding a dating app death comes from australia it's the case of warina wright and gable tosti so we actually had a group for this many years ago um it's all a bit local to me brings back some <laughs> bad memories <laughs> this was before I, I even knew you guys yeah i think so this is one of our very very early crime groups but I'm still blocked by Gable. So. Oh, I know. So, oh my God, that's our little claim to fame. Blocked by I'm Gable. Blocked by Gable, Toasty. Blocked by Gable and not sad about it. <laughs> we, should make, we should make merch that says that. Get every, everyone to get blocked by him. All right. So I believe when this happened in 2014 that Gable was around 28 and Warina was about 26. They both wanted uncomplicated, fast sex. And hooking up on the dating app Tinder was the perfect way to do it. But when Gable Tosti met Warina Wright two years ago, their night of passion ended in death. A drunken argument, fighting, and then a sickening scream as Warina fell 14 floors from Tosti's Gold Coast apartment balcony. That was horrific enough. But what drew further attention and condemnation was Tosti's unusual behaviour and apparent disregard for Warina in the seconds and minutes after her death. The couple met on Tinder and they arranged to hook up in Surface Paradise, which is in Queensland in Australia. It's a very touristy area. There's lots of high-rise buildings right on the beach. Um, I don't know. like It's a very well-known and kind of infamous area in Queensland. The couple met at the Cavill Mall, which is kind of like an open-air shopping strip. There's, you know, down the middle there's paved and paved area and you can walk up and down. So it was a public place. They met there at around 8.45 p.m. that night. At 8.48pm, they were seen on CCTV going into a bottle shop and buying a six-pack of beer. At 8.58pm, they were seen on camera at Gable's apartment getting into an elevator. So they obviously went up into the apartment and kind of did their thing, I guess, and now we're at midnight, after midnight, so we're at August 8. There's a really great timeline from the Brisbane Times, and that's how we'll kind of tell Warita's story in this episode. 
At 12.24am, six photos were taken on Gable's balcony with a Canon camera. At 12.55am, a sound recorder was activated on a device allegedly owned by Gable. Police are uncertain what he used to record the audio, but the file appeared to have been transferred to a Sony Xperia phone, which was later seized. So I feel like, if I remember rightly, Gable had a bit of a history of recording these type of dates and things that he did with these women. The recording commenced at 12.56. Music is heard, and 20 seconds into the recording, a male says, fuck me. And they're obviously referring to male and female. It's probably Gable and Marina. There was no one else around, but they obviously can't be 100% sure. The male asks the female to chill and have a drink. The female says she is, quote, psycho drunk and not to test her. At 1.05 to 1.08 a.m., the pair talk about death. The male says, throw me off the balcony, and that is it. This is it. Boom. From 116 to 120, there's laughing and sounds of hitting. So I'm guessing maybe they were kind of playing, play fighting. Music continues to play in the background and there are soft sounds of groaning. At 129, the male says, I don't like getting beaten up. 1.36am, the argument begins when the female says she's leaving and she can't find her iPhone. She says, are you going to fucking untie me because I will fucking destroy your jaw? The male then says, I should never have given you so much to drink. I thought we were going to have fun. And he then asked her to calm down. He says to her then, you are just a bit violent. He offers to cook her some food and they kind of calm down a little bit after that. 1.53 a.m. they poured some more drinks. At 2 a.m. the occupant of the apartment below Gables was woken by the noise. The audio recording starts again at 2.10 and the male tells the female to relax and threatens to kick her ass. There's sounds of a struggle that they can hear on the audio and there's basically, it sounds like the sound of rocks being thrown or something being thrown around the apartment. And the male says at 2.14am, that is enough. You have worn out your welcome. You have to leave. And the female says, okay. The male then said, I thought you were kidding and I have taken enough. This is fucking bullshit. You are lucky I haven't chucked you off my balcony, you goddamn psycho little bitch. At 2.16am, the female who is breathing quite heavily then says that he's sexist and then she tells him to lay off. He replies and says, you're a goddamn psycho. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to walk you out of this apartment just the way you are. You are not going to collect any of your belongings. You are just going to walk out and I'm going to slam the door on you. Do you understand? If you try and pull anything, I'll knock you out. Do you understand? The female then just said, I am so sorry. And he said, I don't care. At 2.17am, there's sounds of struggling and the male says, let go of it, let it go, let it go. And then there's some choking sounds heard a few minutes later. There's a sound of a metallic object, so I'm wondering if that was her phone or, anyway, something's dropping to the ground. 2.20am, the door unlocks and a female says, no, and there's a sound of a glass door possibly being hit. The male says, who the fuck do you think you are? And she says, no, 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 no. And he says, you tried to kill me. Well, why did you try and hit me with that? Shut your filthy mouth. And she's screaming this whole time, no, 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 just let me go home. And he said, I would, but you have been a bad girl. And her last words are, just let me go home, just let me go home. And then there's faint screaming from at 2.21 a.m. So the occupant um, of the apartment below Gables said that he heard the female screaming and they saw, quote, two legs dangling down. The witness statement says, in a matter of seconds, I saw a person fall from the balcony above mine. 2.21, Gable placed a call to his lawyer. So this is like literally the minute after she falls. The call doesn't connect. The person in the apartment below called triple zero, which is the emergency number here, at 2.23 and police arrived at the scene at 2.25 a.m. 
At the same time, there's like a, you know, swipe key to Gable's apartment. It's activated. CCTV sees a man believed to be Gable at 2.28, so three minutes after the police arrive, approach the front entrance of the apartment. He walks back to the elevator and goes to the basement. At 3.10 a.m., Gable is seen kind of down the road. This is a very um, commercial, busy area where, you know, there's lots of nightclubs and things like that. So he goes to get a piece of pizza. He says, um, a piece of Supreme, please. This is 3.10 a.m., so 40 minutes basically after Arena died. So, so why didn't you go out on the balcony to check to see if she was okay? Instinctively, I knew that if I ran out there and somebody saw me looking over the edge and she had actually fallen all the way, it would look like, you know, it, it, it would not look good. It would look like I, I had forced her over or something. So you were worried about what it would look like for you? Of course I was worried about her. I was, I was absolutely terrified at what had just happened to her, but, you know... You just told me that you were a kind and caring guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, I was, you, couldn't have even, you couldn't even be bothered to go out on the balcony and look over the side and see what had happened to her. Well, whatever had happened out there had happened, and looking over the edge you know, that it doesn't help anybody. There's no purpose to it. Wait, you kidding? Well, no, I mean... There's no purpose to looking over the edge. What, to see if she's alive? To see if she's no, okay? No, because that, that, that's just, you know, uh, knee-jerk curiosity. And like I said, I was, I was deeply concerned by what had happened to her. You were so deeply concerned, Gable, that from her death scream to the next event, which was you calling your lawyer, was 35 seconds. I froze on the spot and I thought, I need to do whatever is the most rational thing to do at the moment. I need advice. I need advice from somebody impartial. I had been wandering around the streets, confused, extremely drunk and in shock, and I needed to clear my head and sober up and so I found a place that had some food. Warina Wright's body is on the pavement. You don't even know if she's still breathing and you are happily munching away on a slice of Super Supreme. There's nothing happy or casual or indulgent about it. That was, that night, that was the most scared I've ever been. It's the most distraught I've, I've ever been in my entire life. Can you understand why many people would think you're a cold, heartless, cruel bastard? When you, when you put it that way. Um, at 3.23, Gable called his dad and he said, Hi, Dad, I might have a bit of a situation. See, I met up with a girl for a date and she started getting really aggressive. It was all right at first and, like, you know, we had sex in bed and she kept drinking. I think that she thought it was a joke and she kept beating me up. It was because she was really drunk or whatever and I forced her out on the balcony and I think she may have jumped off. And his dad said, oh, no. no. <laughs> and, then, and then Gable, a million cops around my building. I'm fucked. I don't know what to do. I didn't cause this. I didn't push her. It's really fucked up. Dad, this is not my fault. I, I don't know. Like I tackled her on my floor inside the building and I never forced her over the edge. And the dad goes, I'm sure you wouldn't have, mate. Anyway, so they keep talking. Dad agrees to go and pick Gable up. Um, and then they basically they all agree to ring the lawyer. 
Um, and Gable does say at 3.52 a.m., I may have locked her on the balcony because there's a lock. I can't remember what I did, but I absolutely did not throw her off the balcony. I would never do anything like that. So they go on a bit more, but 4.07 to 4.15 a.m., they discuss what, you know, what Gable should do. Um, and he says, I did turn on the voice recording. Are you going to stop somewhere? And then they stop and turn it off. Gable go went to the Service Paradise Police Station that same day at 11.30 a.m. and he refused to participate in the police interview. They ordered a forensic examination where they discover some small defensive wounds on Gable's body, but he was released without charge. On August 15, Gable was taken into custody, though, and charged with murder. The Both parties in the court kind of agreed that Gable had not pushed Warina off the balcony, but the argument was that she was so intimidated and had no other way to escape that she kind of tried to climb down and she fell. Gable made a lot of social media posts before this incident and they were made public during the investigation. He used to post things like, quote, bang two girls tonight. First one was four out of ten, not worth mentioning, didn't look like her pics and I couldn't even finish. So this gives you an idea of the kind of person he was and his personality and his attitude toward women. Just thinking, he reminds me of the guys from the Christy Giles death as well. Yeah, yeah, he does. David Pierce, absolutely. He's just like one of them, basically. So there's also a pretty seedy nightclub in Service Paradise called Sin City, <laughs> and okay. Gable even managed to get banned from there. His ban was because he targeted young women who had complained that he had been, quote, creeping him out. So the trial went on, and on October 20, 2016, Gable Tosti was found not guilty of the murder or manslaughter of Warina Wright. It took the jury four days of deliberation to reach this verdict. Gable did not speak to the media, but his lawyer made a statement that he was, quote, looking forward to moving on with his life. So um, I think a lot of people at the time were shocked about that decision, especially maybe the manslaughter, not guilty charge. Yeah. But, you know, Gable has still, all these years later, is still on the news regularly for his, he's still Tinder dating as far as we know. Um, you know, he, he hasn't changed his ways and I doubt he ever will. He's, he's just a big asshole because he doesn't seem very, like, um, sympathetic about any of it. He's, like, s- smug about it almost. Yeah. Like, I get why he wasn't charged with it in a sense because it's kind of, you can't really prove it beyond reasonable doubt. But. He's for sure an asshole. Since all this has happened, he's also changed his name from Gable Tosti, which is quite a distinctive name to Eric Thomas, I guess, to be a bit more generic and blend in when people search for him. Um, yeah. There's a photo of a Tinder profile that he made after the trial. He's got his name as Eric. In this Tinder profile, it's him and he says six foot three and he's trying to be funny here, I guess. And he writes, proud single mum might also be pregnant. Don't know. Here to find my princess. And he's got a list of, um, you know, so his ticks or checks are adventures, friends, laughter, a bunch of other generic shit. And his crosses are definitely not here for validation or attention. Not looking for a one night stand, but will probably take one anyway. Not here just to promote my Insta. And then he links his Instagram. He's a creep. It's the worst. Yeah. So that's it for Gable. No doubt he'll always be around in some form creeping around. Yeah. He like loves the attention. Definitely. But as soon as you comment anything to him being fresh, he'll block you. Yeah. I don't even remember what I said. It was like some public thing that he was commenting on. And I, I said something fresh to him. I went real life, broke our own rules. But <laughs> Good old He days. was asking for it. Mm. Immediately blocked. 
So, yeah, as you said, I doubt that these three women will be the last women to die after meeting a creep on a dating app. Yeah, that's it sucks because, like, even with Gable, like, she met him in a public place and then went back to his apartment and kind of all got out of hand. And it's just scary that you never know when you're going to meet, like, the wrong in, person. Yeah. In Sydney's case, especially, like, a psychopath. Yeah. But, you know, just a reminder to people out there, they do have, um, a lot of good phone apps now, like emergency things. Like I have a Pixel and you could set it up where if you hit like the power button like quick four or five times, you can set it up so it tech you pick like emergency contacts and it'll text them and say that you like need help and it'll give your location. And I think it'll even start kind of like recording the audio or like take pictures or something to send to them. And you could set it to also call 911 for you which I don't have it set to call 911 because I'm like nervous. What if I hit it by accident or something somehow? <laughs> but I know I think iPhones have something similar. So if, especially if, if you're a girl who is dating and meeting people online or just a girl in general, because we are usually the victims of crimes like this, it's not a bad thing to have on your phone. Obviously, men too. You can be a victim, but I feel like the girls are more fearful of stuff like this. I've even seen you can get like things like a necklace or a bracelet or something that look like normal jewelry but they actually it's kind of like a medic alert thing I guess where if you need help you can push something on your bracelet or your necklace and it will um, alert you know the police or whoever your emergency contact is so you might not always have your phone or be able to get your phone but you may likely you know you might still be able to have your jewelry on you and use that if you need help. I saw there's like another there's a few different ones on my phone there's one where you can set it up to if you are nervous or if you feel like someone's following you maybe or you're like in a place alone where you don't feel safe you could set your timer on this thing to like check in on you in five minutes or something and if you don't respond to the check-in it'll alert your emergency contacts and there's one that's like you set it so that you're with your you have to keep your finger on the screen and if you take your finger off the screen after like 10 seconds or something if you don't hit like the button to be like i'm okay it'll alert your emergency contacts so i mean those are good if you ever feel like someone's following you or someone's like bothering you or you feel like you're about to get like hurt if you have like the state of mind to be able to do something like that quickly yeah there's a lot of good things that which it's sad that they needed but it's useful to have yeah definitely it makes me feel a little more secure to at least know that those things are there yeah definitely if you don't have something like that maybe something to look into So as kind of an update, there has been one really big case that we've been following just in the last day, like probably 24 hours. It's about a woman called Danielle Hoyle and her newborn baby, Kennedy Hoyle. Um, Kennedy and Danielle, Danielle was found deceased on Wednesday, I believe. She was found shot to death and her two-year-old baby, Kennedy, is still missing at the time of recording. I suspect she will be found, so we might put a clip in, but... Basically, what has come out is that the baby's father, Brendan Isabel, shot Danielle and threw the baby into a river to kill her, um, basically because he had another relationship and he didn't want to take responsibility for the child. Um, This all happened in Memphis, Tennessee. So they found the baby's abandoned car seat. Like This is just sick. I cannot believe that. I don't even know why I should be surprised, but there there are people out there who do things like this to a two-day-old brand new, new newborn baby. You, know, you can cry so much that tears don't even come down your eyes anymore. I, I, I ain't slept. Sissy lady. No, I haven't slept. I haven't slept. It's been 24 hours after April Campbell's daughter was killed and granddaughter disappeared. Yeah, she missed by everybody. 
Like I say, young folks make mistakes. But that wasn't a mistake. There wasn't a reason to kill my daughter. 27-year-old Danielle Hoyle was found shot to death near her car in Whitehaven around 11.15 Tuesday night. Police soon realized her newborn daughter wasn't with her. The search lasted all day Wednesday and into the night on Mud Island for two-day-old Kennedy Hoyle. I just wish I could just hold my grandbaby. I just want to tell them, you know, I love them. I miss him. After 6 p.m. Wednesday, police arrested Kennedy Hoyle's father, Brandon Isabel, on two counts of first-degree murder, murder in the perpetration of aggravated kidnapping, especially aggravated kidnapping, and tampering and fabricating evidence. This is what Campbell had to say about the man accused of killing her daughter and grandchild. I want him to suffer like he made my baby suffer. I want him to hurt. I don't want it to be easy for him. I want him to suffer. He needs to suffer. Why would you hurt a baby? The mother had been going driving to take the baby to the hospital. I don't know if the baby was going for a check or if the baby had a medical issue or what, but she was on her way to take this poor little baby to the hospital. And that's when, I guess, Brandon kind of ambushed her and killed them both, essentially. They have said that they're looking for the baby's remains now. They are not looking to recover. The, like They are not hopeful to recover the baby alive. It's just like crazy that there's people out there that are so i don't know if narcissistic is the right word or have such a ego that to protect your to protect yourself from being exposed for cheating basically that you're willing to murder a woman and a baby like you've just ruined your own life worse said, than if you got caught cheating i said yesterday what was his plan like did he really think that he was going to get away with this like there is no way he could have gotten away with it. Either he just thought he, you know, was so arrogant and thought that he would or he really didn't care. Yeah, it's just like, so now instead of just being a cheater, you're a murderer and a baby murderer. And he'd actually been in the hospital with Danielle when Kennedy was born. So That's the it's, weird, just, it's almost like the weirdest part. Like, why was he even there yeah. then? The baby was six pounds and she was last seen wearing a black and white polka dot onesie with pink pants. The baby's grandmother, Amber Campbell, spoke to Fox News and she said, the baby was loved before she even got here and for us not to have her, that's not right. I only got to hold my baby for 10 or 15 minutes. I fed her and changed her. I put her on my chest and then she was gone. Oh, it's just one of those things and you just like, someone's like, I'm just done. I can't do it anymore. And I'm like, that makes you just think, what hope do we have really if there's people out there doing things like this? Yeah, it makes me just not want to go out talk to people yeah yeah well this whole episode is about the worst don't leave your house stay home be safe don't talk to anyone don't even meet people online (laughs) yeah so there's an update with that case like we said they're actively searching for the baby still so we'll put a clip here if there's any updates by the time this episode comes out um i guess that's it yeah i think that's it for now As always, if you want to find out more information on any of these cases, check out our blog at truecrimesocietyblog.com. We'll also, we always link it in our Instagram stories as well. So if that's an easier way for you to find it, just follow us on Instagram and you will see them linked in our stories all the time, along with other just daily news updates, things people send us, missing people. Um, Just we post things on Instagram all throughout the day. So If you want to stay up to date on all the latest crimes, definitely follow us there. And we also have our forum is a good place. 
to chat with people more anonymously, read some rabbit holes. It's at truecrimesociety.com. It's just a regular forum. You get usernames. And you could say whatever you want without people going onto your Facebook profile and stalking your life. And if you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, please leave us a five-star rating. It really helps us out. And if you don't mind sharing the podcast to your Instagram story or to whatever social media you use a lot, that's also a big help to us. And it's a great way to show us some support, helps get the word out there, help us grow our audience a bit. So we always appreciate that as well. Definitely. So that's it for this week. Um, if you guys have any interesting thoughts or anything you want to tell us, send us a message on Instagram, what you think about these cases, whatever. And like I said, now I'm going to start saying thanks for listening and we'll talk <laughs> to you guys next time. Bye. See ya. Yeah.